You're listening to a podcast appearing on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Have you ever had the feeling of being watched? Hidden eyes following you? A cold chill crawling up your spine? The hairs on the back of your neck standing straight up? Do you know what that is? It's fear. It's fear. Fear is the most basic human emotion tied into our instinct to survive. Fear gives us the means to overcome great odds or cripple us with paralyzing dread. Dread. But fear can also entertain. Turn off all the lights, lock your closet door, and ignore the sounds from beneath your bed. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. It's everywhere. You know it, and I know it. Take a good look around you. It's almost impossible to ignore. You see it? It's right there. It's a scrap of horror clinging to your everyday life. No longer contained in old films and dusty books, horror can be found in almost every crevice of popular culture. It's in your music. It's in your games. It's in your television. A person would have to go out of their way to keep the boogeyman from their lives. Crank up the heavy metal as you level up your zombie slaying sorcerer. It's time for Two Guys Talking Horror. Salutations, everybody. I'm Nicholas J. Hearn, your host. And I am Jason Contini. Jason, welcome back. For those of you who uh, have listened to our previous episode, uh, a crash course into horror. Now I introduce Jason to, uh, to 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 the world as my simpatico companion, my hetero life mate. I was just gonna say hetero life mate. You beat me to it. <laughs> this podcast is no laughing matter, though, because we are now starting a crash course into horror part two. That's right, it's a sequel, baby. You know, it's funny. Every time you say something about a sequel, the first thing that comes to my mind is Matthew Lillard's line in Scream when he's like, let's face it, baby, these days you gotta have a sequel. So that's the first thing that pops into my head every time I even hear that word. You know, come on, man, a sequel, you know, it, it keeps it going. You get, the, you get the same stuff that you got before and more. You gotta up the ante. You gotta, you gotta take it to, to the next level. You gotta add new things. All stuff that we're doing tonight. Oh, yes. In a sequel, you always learn something new that you didn't know from the first one. There's always a little bit of information added that you didn't see coming in the first one. The body count is bigger. The the kills are more elaborate. Carnage candy. Carnage candy. So what we're going to do is we're going to uh, we're going to pull back the curtain, ladies and gentlemen, and we're going to tell you a story. It's actually the origin story of Jason and I, how our our friendship was solidified, and it all revolves around horror well it depends on some could say that it may not be considered horror 
I personally think it fits under the banner. But anyway. Just because it's also an action movie as well. There's horror elements because it's a, it's something that was brought back to life. Yes. What we're talking about is The Mummy Returns. Now, for those of you who are, are, are have been living under a rock for the last 15 or so years, there's these great series. Of, well, the first two were great. Third one, questionable. There was these great movies that starred Brendan Fraser and Arnold Vosloo. There you go, and Rachel Weisz. And very, very yes, can't can't forget her pre-Oscar-winning Rachel Weisz. Yes, and because one wasn't enough, the Mummy had to return. And this film came out right around the time that Jason and I had met. Now, Jason was working at a local comic shop, and I was going to said local comic shop. Basically, he was my dealer, and I was the junkie. <laughs> And I would show up enough to where we, we actually just started chatting about movies and things like that. One thing led to another. We're exchanging phone numbers, and it's, hey, hey, Mummy Returns is coming out. You want to you wanna go see it? Or, yeah, all right, fine. I love the first one. I bet the second one's going to be even better. So we end up we end up heading out to the local theater, uh, Ronnie's 20, the, where, the local Werenberg uh, haunt. With a handful of other friends of Jason, so I was being—I was kind of being brought in to meet a whole bunch of his friends. Uh, we saw the movie; movie rocked. And then we were going to go back and uh, back to one of his friends, have a couple of cocktails, and everybody kind of kind of went on their own way. And it was me and Jason stuck in a car. Godzilla, Jason's car at oh, the time was named right. Godzilla. I named it Godzilla. Yeah, yeah I forgot it was about Godzilla. That. Here we are, we're trying to get out of South County and onto the highway, and it's it's a Friday night. We're on Limburg, and it's just crazy, with kids cruising up and down. It's a big cruising strip. Yes, very big cruising strip here in St. Louis. And Jason accidentally taps, taps, I mean taps, the car in front of us with his bumper. Totally my fault. I was not paying attention. This is true. Admitted fault in the moment, even. So these two kids jump out, and when when I say kids, at that point in time, Jason and I were in our early 20s. 22, something like that? 22, yeah. 20, we were like 21, 22. But these kids were like 17, 18, right. and it was a very nice car, and you can tell that evidently mommy and daddy got it for them. These kids are, oh my God, no, no, we got to call the cops. Oh, we got to get the cops involved. So we're like, well, how about this? Let's just pull in at the gas station that's right there at the street, and the, this gas station just so happened to be attached to the parking lot of the Best Buy that's on, on, on the Strip as well. And I remember we pulled into that parking lot, <sighs> and it wasn't maybe more than Two a minutes. minute. I would say even, even less than that, maybe more than a minute. We were getting out of the car to talk to these two guys, thinking, well, I guess here we are. We're going to exchange information because that's that's the mature thing. To do. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, as soon as we turned around, there was what? Eight, nine other cars that had pulled in. All pulled in. Everybody's jumping out. And they all knew the two kids that we tapped. It was it was like some kind of weird modern St. Louis cruising version of, of I don't know, West Side Story. And the, and the jets were horribly, horribly outnumbered by the sharks <laughs> or something. Exactly. Now this, this is what solidified our friendship for decades to come. We are now surrounded... Uh, again, none of these these ruffians were being threatening, be, acting threatening, but they were all giving us that look that this could go sideways, and we we're still waiting for the cops to show up. So I look at them, and I look at Jason, and I lean in and I whisper to him, and I'm like, "You take the twenty on the left, I'll take the twenty on the right." 
We had a good laugh. And if any of you have ever seen me, <laughs> you know, you would you We're would, not you would intimidating know that, looking at all. No, me taking 20 of maybe a, some, you know, maybe a cookie. <laughs> I don't know. 20, 20 belly bombers from White Castle? Maybe, yeah, maybe. maybe. But uh, yeah, that right there solidified it. We've been thick as thieves ever since. You know, cops showed nothing. Nothing came of it. Insurance was exchanged. Blah blah blah. We went on our merry way. We had a great story to tell once we got back to the rest of the group with with alcoholic beverages. And again, we've we've it's been brothers from other mothers ever since. So one could actually kind of say, in a sense, and a roundabout way of thinking, that this whole podcast that you listen to all the time is the result of The Mummy Returns. So thank you, Mummy Returns. <laughs> it's one of the few things that uh, that we can actually thank uh, uh, Stephen Summers for. <laughs> <laughs> All right, enough with us gabbing. Vampires and werewolves and zombies. Oh, my. We're going to touch on all of them and more as Jason and I take you on a crash course. Part two. <laughs> oh yes, there is horror in all media. Now in our previous episode, we talked about literature and film, and that encompassed an entire episode. And we did a pretty good job covering the basics. Again, this is just a crash course. Sure, each one of these topics could hold an entire episode on their own. Uh, we could break down just literature on its own as each decade having an episode oh, if we yeah. wanted to. This is really, really crash course. Very. So, what did we leave out? Well, of course, we left out a whole bunch of stuff. We left out television, we left out comic books, we left out video games, and we left out music. And theater. Oh, yes. Broadway's got some horror, baby. So sit back, relax, and put on your helmet, because here we go, A Crash Course in Horror, Part 2. <laughs> television. Ah, yes, the golden age of television. Sure, it might have been black and white. Still didn't make it any less creepy. There was some great classic television. Luckily enough, because of streaming mediums nowadays, Hulu, Netflix, things like that, we're able to see a lot of the older shows that a lot of people would have missed out on. Uh, I mean, sure, there's other uh, networks that did reruns, but I don't know many places where I could find streaming Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Which really, I mean, when you think about uh, horror television, that's from from the beginning of TV, from the from the beginning of the the whole television era, that's one of the the big three. I mean, oh yeah, you know that's that's one of the <laughs> the trinity of horror television at that time. Yeah, well, I, it, it makes complete and utter sense that Alfred Hitchcock would break into a different medium. I mean, he 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 dominated in film. His his films are just, ugh. even the ones that aren't even considered really horror still have moments where you kind of feel uncomfortable when you're watching. It, to this day, I would say almost every single one of his films holds up today. Maybe not by today's standards, but they hold up story-wise today. You have Alfred Hitchcock Presents, then you've got The Twilight Zone. Obviously the, the best of the bunch. I mean, yes. that's... 
the Twilight Zone, in my opinion, that's the standard. It really kind of took the idea of this this weekly revolving door of stories and really kind of pushed it to a new limit. I mean, Rod Serling is probably one of the most brilliant men in television history. Yes. And, and what fun. He was in the in such a genre-bending show. And you have to look at the, the opposite side of the street because sometimes it was you're either a Twilight Zone fan or you're an Outer Limits fan. Yeah. I again, I'm 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 both. I like a little of both. There was some Twilight Zone that I liked, some eh. There's some Outer Limits stuff that I liked and some that I was eh. Sure. And that's, you know, you're going to have that with any kind of uh, anthology show like that. And boy, and those shows, those three particularly were, were so popular and they were such a big deal at the time that obviously those are the three that we all know about, but there were there were so many copycats. And I don't mean mean that derogatorily. I just mean that there were so many other shows that were copying the same format. Things like Boris Karloff's Thriller, mm-hmm. which uh, was another kind of horror anthology series. Even Rod Serling himself, after Twilight Zone, went on with uh, Night Gallery. Oh, yeah, Night Gallery. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, there, there's so much. And I think that was really the early days of television. That was really where horror found its voice was those anthology series. They hadn't t- TV hadn't quite found a way to make a sustainable week to week storyline or or characters found a way to, to to continue a story that way outside of anthology television. Totally agree. The great thing about it is, is that if it weren't for Alfred Hitchcock presents Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, we wouldn't have gotten anything else right. on this list. Right. You also have to look at, at sitcoms. We had horror sitcoms, the yeah. family-friendly sitcom shows. We had The Munsters and The Addams Family yep. during the same period of time. Jason, I, I need to know, what are you? Are you an Addams Family fan or a Munsters fan? Which one did you prefer? <laughs> you know, I, I I kind of say that that's, that's almost like asking someone, which Beatle are you? And I think most people tend to tend to go for somebody like, John Lennon when they're younger and rebellious <laughs> and then when they get older they start looking more at Paul McCartney and then when they you know <laughs> get older still they realize the brilliance of George Harrison's I mean you know I think that's something that can change over I'm time. a realist I know I'm Ringo uh, and know. I'm just going to stick with that <laughs> Well that's unfortunate <laughs> I think for Ringo actually No I don't know I think when I was a kid I was a big Munsters fan mm-hmm. big big Munsters fan I even remember there used to be a, a a TV show in the late 80s I want to say where they brought the monsters back and I think it only lasted for maybe six seven weeks mm-hmm. but I just remember thinking it was the coolest thing in the world and any time that the monsters TV movies were on I was glued to the TV I, I recently tried to go back and watch some and I can't get as into it as I used to it's very dated it, well it doesn't it doesn't hold me like it did yeah. whereas the Adams family Man, I can watch an episode of The Addams Family today and just be be glued. I, I think I was too young to understand it. So mm. today I'd have to say Addams Family. I enjoyed both. I think the appeal for the monsters was the fact that it was takes off of the universal monsters. I mean, you had Herman, who was obviously Frankenstein's monster. You had Grandpa, who was obviously a, a knockoff of Dracula, and so on and so forth. The Adams family, though, it was just this. This is a family that's just wild and wacky. You've never seen anything like it before, and I, I, I'd have to agree with you. The Adams family, even watching old episodes today, I can feel more. I can get more into it than watching an episode of the. Mon- it's cute. The monsters is cute, 
but it's not as captivating as it once was. Yeah, no, and I and I think the Adams family really much like much like a lot of old cartoons. You watch them when you're a kid, and it's funny just to watch each other these cartoon characters bang each other on the heads with pans and and what have and mallets and what have you. Yeah. Um, but when you get older and you actually <laughs> listen to the dialogue that these people put into these cartoons, it's it's far more advanced than you would actually think, and and not. Not something that kids can really always fully grasp. Yeah. And I think The Addams Family was the same way. I think The Monsters was a little bit more just, hey, this is sitcom slapstick, you know, using monsters. But but The Addams Family was really intelligently put together, I think. Let's look at the other side of the spectrum. Let's look at the soap opera angle. If you want a horror-filled soap opera, back in the 60s, there was only one place to go. And that was Collinwood. Oh, yeah. And that was Dark Shadows. Yeah. We're not talking about Johnny Depp here. <laughs> no, no, we're not talking about the the film, and I use it. I use the term loosely, adaptation. I'm talking about the original television series, Dark Shadows. I'll tell you, I've I've actually caught a handful of the older episodes, and it's hard to watch, man. It's hard to watch by today's standards. I can understand how how yeah. brilliant it might have been back then, but today. Those older ones are a little rough. I was introduced to Dark Shadows with the the updated reboot that they did in the late 80s, early 90s. With, uh, who was that? I think that was Ben Cross that played yes. Barnabas Collins. Yes. Yeah, that's where I got introduced to it, too. And I remember at the time, because that show had actually got some popularity during mm-hmm. the first half of its first season. Yeah. Of course, subsequently... All the reruns of the old show then came out mm-hmm. to capitalize on that. So I remember watching it at the time and thinking, okay, this is okay, but I'm so young, I don't really understand all this. But this new show, man, this right. is cool. And yeah, I agree. I, I don't know that the old show really quite holds up. I think it's uh, uh, it may have been groundbreaking at the time, and, and you can certainly appreciate what it did. But yeah, yeah I, don't, I don't dig it as much as I dig Ben Cross's version. It's uh, The way that I look at it, it's, it's, generational, uh, it's generational nostalgia, because my mother was the one who convinced me to watch the updated reboot because of her love of the original stuff. She told me all about the original stuff so that while we're watching this new updated version, I'm watching her recognize certain themes that she remembered from the old show. But then she it's, it's a little bit new, so she's enjoying it like for the first time. Plus, she's also watching it with me, and I'm, I'm, I'm digging it because I can get behind the concept of uh, a vampire who a, a, a character who is living with a curse, trying to break said curse and doing everything that he can to walk the fine line between good and evil, and that's what Barnabas Collins was. At least, at least that's what I conceived it at the time. And it's a it was a damn shame that the show only lasted the one season. I, mean, I, I did it did it come back for a second season? You know, I have I have a vague recollection that it tried to come back and maybe only lasted for about another 8 or 9 episodes. Yeah, I remember I there think, was some time but, um, travel stuff yeah, going on. Yeah, they it, were really they started to lose viewers and and I think they were really trying to push things to get ratings, which yeah. is unfortunate. It was I remember it being well done. And then of course, you can't forget animation. You can't forget animation at all. And if there was one show that I'm not even talking about people here in America. All around the world. All you got to say is, hey, Scooby! Scooby Doo! <laughs> Where are you? Oh, I can watch, I could watch those episodes today. 
the old, I could watch the I I prefer the old ones. I don't like any of the newer stuff. No, I don't either. And I I don't know that I necessarily prefer the old episode. I like the the special the specials that aired or the special 30 minute 40 minute episodes that they did where they would bring in the, the Harlem Globetrotters the Glo- or, or, or Batman, Batman and Robin, Robin. yeah, <laughs> or or the Adams Family or the Adams Family, right? Exactly. Yes, those yes. those were always the ones. I I always remember being let down a little bit when it was Scooby Doo, but he wasn't working with he wasn't working with Gomez. And, you know, like, oh, okay, <laughs> or Don Knotts. Or Don Knotts. Yes, that's right. Don Knotts. You bring, would show yeah, up. you yeah. bring Don Knotts in. Yeah, yeah. See, see, that's the great thing. That that you know what. I have to make a call to the audience. Let us know. I got. We got to know. What is your favorite Scooby-Doo episode? Did you like it when they teamed up with Batman and Robin? Were you a big fan of the Harlem Globetrotters? Maybe, maybe you are a Don Knotts or a Phyllis Diller fan. Let us know by going over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out that web form on the right-hand side and let us know what... what What part of Scooby-Doo did you just dig? Now, before we get out of the classic era, before we jump into the 80s, there's one show, and it was a show that did not last very long, but when you retrace the steps of television history, you can see how influential this show was. And this show I'm talking about is Kolchak, The Night Stalker, starring the great, late Darren McGavin. What an underrated show at, for its time. I think now it has finally gotten its due, but boy, it was good. I was introduced to this show in a very in a very strange way. I don't know how many people remember how long ago it was, but I remember before there was a time of the Sci-Fi Channel, before Sci-Fi Channel existed. I remember when Sci-Fi Channel first started, they didn't have any original programming. They were showing reruns of old stuff, and usually it was reruns of... Twilight Zone, Outer Limits, The Prisoner, things like that. And then one day, they announce that they're going to have a day-long marathon. Every episode of Kolchak the Night Stalker. I had no idea what this show was about. All I know is it had Darren McGavin, the dad, from A Christmas Story. Yeah, exactly. That's where my brain worked as a young as a younger person. This is the dad from the from the Christmas story. That's where my brain works still, man. I still see him and I think, not a finger. Nah. Fragile. <laughs> and and now the thing was is that when I was a child I didn't have cable. My grandmother had cable and she lived two hours away down south. And God bless my grandmother. When I asked her, I said, Grandma, could you could you tape these? Could you just pop a tape in and record them? I was expecting, you know, her to pop in a couple of tapes and then, you know, I'd have to watch the commercials. When I finally came back to visit my grandmother, she had the tape, tapes for me and it was an eight hour tape. I was like, oh, it all fit on eight hours? Because I'm thinking grandma didn't do what I asked. Grandma only taped half of it. God bless my grandmother. May she rest in peace. She sat there and she cut the commercials for me. So I had every single bit of the Night Stalker available in a nice eight-hour chunk, and I watched it over and over and over again. It's a brilliant show. For those of you out there that perhaps maybe are too young to even know what a VCR is, (laughs) uh, that's quite a feat to actually sit there. You would have to actually sit there and press pause while you're recording each time the commercial would start and then hit it again when the commercial stopped. So that meant that she probably sat there the entire day watching these shows and probably didn't even want to. <laughs> for uh, yes, you. so that's, a, that's and quite this was a thing. my grandmother. So you know she she did that for me. But the great thing about this show 
is if you are a fan of a little show called The X-Files, you will know that Chris Carter was a huge fan as well of Shack the Night Stalker, and it was actually the original inspiration for him to do The X-Files. So much to the point that there's an episode of The X-Files that guest stars Darren McGavin as an ex-FBI agent who, during his time at the Bureau, also investigated The X-Files. So it all comes full circle, folks. Full circle, Darren McGavin, Kolchak the Night Stalker. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you definitely need to check it out. There will be a link to all the information that I can shove at you about Kolchak the Night Stalker on the show notes. It'll be located at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Welcome to the 80s, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the start of a trend. Horror started showing up a little bit more regularly as we got out of the 70s and moved swiftly into the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, horror television really took uh, took off kind of in the 80s there. And again, they, they started to go back to the idea of anthology. Well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. With things like uh, Tales from the Dark Side, mm. which when I was a kid, I, I still to this day have never seen a great many episodes of Tales from the Dark Side. Mm-hmm. But I know that when I was a kid, and, and it was late at night, and I heard that music come on. Yeah. Oh man, the theme song for that thing. I it's not it's not the most terrifying song you've ever heard, but but the kid in me still is so freaked out when I hear that theme music. It's so well the done. The music and the voiceover for that show was sometimes scarier than the actual episode. Oh yeah, and and the the visuals that they had for the yes. opening credits were really well done. You know, but there was a a number of shows there in the 80s and early 90s uh, things like Tales from the Dark Side, Friday the 13th, the series. Which um, had nothing to do with the movie series. Right. Just took the name, right. but actually a damn fine series. Yes. Yeah, it was It was actually good. There were, there were little known shows like Monsters, which was a, oh. a show that ran for about two, maybe three years with, uh, it was the same producer as Tales from the Dark Side. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of big names on there. I mean, they got Linda Blair on that show, and they got uh, Meatloaf, and, yeah. uh, you know, Jerry Stiller. I'm not, you know, Will I Wheaton. remember, I remember the opening for that show. It's it, it looks like it's just a regular family about to sit down and watch television, and they're popping popcorn, it looks like. But, but. You all of a sudden turn around, and it's a family, and they're they're monsters. They're, they yeah. have monster heads. They I, I got think, like antennae and 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 weird bug eyes. Like this, one was a cyclops. I think yeah, I think the dad cyclops. might have been a cyclops. Yeah, maybe. I think the, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, wow. it was, you know, the, these anthologies. And even shows like Amazing Stories, Steven Spielberg's first real big attempt at producing a television series. I think he had maybe dabbled, but that was his first real big push. You know, and Amazing Stories, here you had a show that, that often would go into sci-fi and fantasy, and it would do other things. But there were there were episodes that dealt with horror. I remember very vividly the one about the, the guy who was a... Um, I think he was a he was an actor and uh, he was playing a werewolf in a movie and his wife was pregnant mm. and she's about to give birth and they call 
the soundstage and they're like, hey, your your wife's going into labor. It's time to go. And he runs out. He dressed as he, the... Yeah, he doesn't get out of the makeup. No, he's still in the makeup <laughs> as the world. And then, of course, there's a real werewolf running around. Right. And, um, you know, there was the episode with the mummy, which I just... That one really... And the ghost train that was waiting to pick up... A ghost train that... that I think crashed, if I remember correctly, but one survivor was there, and the, 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 train, the grandfather, the grandfather of this little back, boy. Yeah. And, you know. When I think of amazing stories, I think of the, uh, another. It's a horror episode because there's voodoo and headless zombies running after you, starring Christopher Lloyd as this sadistic high school teacher who this uh, boyfriend and girlfriend decide that uh, they're going to play a little prank. And it's a it's a voodoo curse that's supposed to give him hiccups. But unfortunately, something goes wrong with the voodoo curse, and it causes his head to come off. But he's not dead. So you've got Christo- a headless Christopher Lloyd running around chasing these two kids, holding his head out, screaming at the top of his lungs at you, I'm going to get you! Anytime I think of amazing stories, that's the first one that always really, pops into my head. Really, that's the one. That's the train, one that always gets me. The train episode is the one that always pops into my head hmm. first. Yeah, it was a, you know, the 80s were were a time for this anthology thing to come back and of course, it kept leading up to things such as Freddy's Nightmares. Ah. Uh, <laughs> Freddy which, uh, Freddy's Nightmares, which again, the only real connection to the film series is the fact that Freddy Krueger was your host. And he'd pop up every now and then. But usually it was just an anthology show hosted by Freddy Krueger. Right. And there was a couple that, that he showed up in. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, there, yeah. A handful, there was a handful that were Freddy-centric. But even even kids got in on, on the anthology thing. Oh, yeah. Are you, you afraid of the dark? Nickelodeon. I remember Nickelodeon. That you can do creepy horror stuff. And still keep it G and PG. Yeah, yeah. It was. I, I remember watching that a lot too. I thought that that was a really good show. Actually, now that now that we mention it, I I think I might try to find those again. <laughs> well, there you go. But but really, when when you're talking about anthology shows, the granddaddy, the there's the, the granddaddy the of, them of them all. It's Tales from the Crypt. Yep. That's Tales the, from the that's HBO. The one. HBO had it right. Tales from the Crypt. Ah, you got the big name stars. You've got a budget, so you're able to do the effects. It was great storytelling every single episode. And I think the only one, I guess, outside of Are You Afraid of the Dark, which was, since it was on Nickelodeon, is kind of in a class on its own. Mm. But as far as the adult anthology shows, Tales from the Crypt, the only one that made it past, what, four, five seasons? Most of these shows didn't last long. Most of them ran a season or two. Right, yeah. But Tales from the Crypt, man, that one got it right. And boy, it just, it wasn't, it was unstoppable. And, and, and this is, this is rumor control. It may or may not happen. But as of the recording of this podcast, news has surfaced that Tales from the Crypt is being resurrected. But, but, it's being resurrected by M. Night Shyamalan. Now, that could be a good thing or a bad thing. M. Night has not really done anything good over the last (laughs) decade or so. I enjoyed his earlier work, and I think if he just stopped trying to outdo himself, I think he could could get back to what he was really good at, and that's storytelling. And maybe maybe Tales from the Crypt will do it. Who knows? Nothing may come of it. 
There have been you know, no there have been no official announcements. No yet. We official don't know announcements. There's, That's why there's I call it rumor rumors. control. Rumor control. There's been some rumors. Uh, you know, I've I've heard a rumor that the Crypt Keeper will not be back. I'm not quite sure how you do tales you, from the Crypt. You really can't the do. Yeah. What what the um, hell is that about? Again, that could be a rumor. We don't know. Um, I'm gonna do Freddy's Nightmares with Michael Myers. Yeah. That's gonna be a really quiet show. <laughs> 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 but. There was one show that kind of, I, I don't want to say revolutionized horror on television, but you know what? It just might have. I think it is I think it is the cause and, and reason that we have as much on TV as we do now. I think so it really kind credit of... credit where credit is due. Absolutely. Uh, Joss Whedon, thank you very much, because in the late 90s, you gave us Buffy the Vampire Slayer on, at that point in time, was the WB but then is now known as the CW. But you gave us Buffy the Vampire Slayer, which lasted seven years. You gave us the spinoff, Angel, which lasted five years. You created this nice, juicy universe of monsters and creatures and witches and vampires and werewolves and just everything you could possibly imagine under the sun. I may get a little bit of flack since I am a dude, but I loved watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV series. Not for Buffy Summers herself. It was her supporting cast. I could actually really care less about Sarah Michelle Gellar's portrayal of Buffy Summers. It was never really about Buffy Summers for me. It was about the Scooby gang. It was about Giles and Willow and Xander. It was about, it was about them for me. And I remember this was a show that I watched with my family. I watched this with my mother and my sister, and it was one of those things to where it was like, oh, no, we, we, we can't do this. Buffy's about to come on. And we'd sit down as a family, and we'd watch that. That's kind of, it's kind of something that I really miss about being an adult and being away from my family is I don't have that. I mean, yeah, I mean, my wife and I will watch shows together, but it's, it's not the same. But yeah, yeah, Joss Whedon, thank you. And that's all I got to say about that. <laughs> Every freaking channel, baby. That's right. After the 90s, once you hit the millennium, you've got horror everywhere. There's not a network, both on basic cable, cable television, pay TV, streaming nowadays. There's not a place you can't find a horror show somewhere. It really it really has kind of taken off and become its own thing. And there were a couple of missteps along the way. A few. Um and some of them unfortunate. I, you know, there were shows like The Others which I think aired in the late 90s just as, you know, uh, cable was starting to take notice of things and really really take off. Mm. Uh, you know, which was a great show and only lasted half a season dealing with um paranormal investigators. It was wonderful. I think I have the whole series uh taped off TV somewhere. I'll have to borrow that. Program. Um it's yeah, it was really really good and ended on such a cliffhanger that I I guess that's just how it ends. <laughs> you know, Damn you cliffhangers. There were shows like Miracles, Skeet Ulrich's show. Oh god. Wow. Uh, which again ran for yeah. one, one season, season, half a season. Maybe I, half a season. Yeah. I, I have <laughs> the complete series of that and I still <laughs> to this day have yet to actually finished it i have no idea how the show ends wow. um, kingdom hospital was like yep, that too yep. kingdom hospital based off of uh the works of stephen king but it was also loosely based off of a british show that kind of right. melded the two and it was always meant to be in a a series 
but it only lasted one season. I remember it was the first time I'd seen Andrew McCarthy in years. Oh, wow. Okay. And he's, you know, he's the main character on this show, which was him and the fact that it was Stephen King was the whole draw for me. And I was so upset that it, it didn't come back. I was like, I, I taped this show because, again, VCRs, you got to tape it, got to tape it, got to cut, cut those commercials. I taped this show, and it's only one season? But but there's a clip. It's not a cliffhanger, but there's there's foreshadowing that more things are going to happen, and we'd never go back. And it was such a such a disappointment that certain networks and certain viewing audiences just didn't know what to do with certain shows. Yeah, it really seemed to kind of meander the, the whole genre for a while. And uh, and then, you know, within the last 10, 12 years or so, things changed. It, it total and, change. Yeah, and suddenly, it was almost like overnight, it was everywhere. Everywhere. I mean, we, we've already mentioned True Blood, but you've got The Walking Dead, American Horror Story, Hannibal, Bates Motel. I mean, two properties based off of previously existing film series, which gives you a, a kind of a, a, a origin story-esque, a prequel, uh, if you will. But then you've also got uh, other great cable shows like Penny Dreadful. I've only been able to see the first season of Penny Dreadful. It's a Showtime series. But it's basically League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, only horror, the horror characters. It was great. I mean, in the first, in the first season, you were introduced to Van Helsing, who had a very small part. You were introduced to Victor Frankenstein and one of his creations, and then another of his creations. It was really great. It was it was it was very well done. I'm actually looking forward to seeing the second season, but it, it's 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 changing. And again, the 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 horror from across the pond over in the UK, we're sharing it. It's it's if they do it, we can do it too. We'll just Americanize it. The being human. I've never watched the show. My mother is a huge fan of the American version. I know a lot of people who are big fans of the UK version and can't stand what they've done with the US version. But then you've got uh, other shows that uh, stretch the gambit, like Grimm. I've, I've never seen Grimm, but I hear it's a, I hear it's a great show. Yeah, I, I've heard that it's really good. I, I have yet to watch it as well. You know, and, and it doesn't stop just there. I mean, you mentioned before uh, streaming options. Netflix has gotten into the game uh, mm, with yes. things like Hemlock Grove. Hemlock Grove. It really is kind of all over the place. Anywhere that you kind of look, spinoffs even, you know, we were talking about Walking Dead. Walking Dead has its own spinoff. Fear the Walking Dead, kind of a prequel show. You've got, and I don't watch this show or these shows, but The Vampire Diaries and, and The Originals, which right. is a, a spinoff of The Vampire Diaries, I right, guess. Right, right. And then there are shows that, you know, could be considered those kinds of horror stories or horror pieces that straddle the line. And you're not really sure if it fits in horror, and you're not really sure if it fits in something else. Things like Dexter. Yes. If we're going to put things like Saw and Seven and if Silence those of the Lambs. considered horror films... Dexter, Dexter is a horror show. Dexter is kind of a horror show, yes. Very well put. But all of those shows pale in comparison to a, a, one particular show that has now been running for 11 years. A show that is very dear and near to Jason and I's heart. A little show called Supernatural. Now, there's probably a, an episode of this podcast in the near future that's going to be focused on our love, hate, and frustration of the show, Supernatural. So we won't get into it very much now. 
an episode, we could probably go an episode on each season. There could be. Well, <laughs> stay tuned, folks. There, there's going to be a whole series of podcasts devoted to our love, hate, and misunderstanding of Supernatural. But yes, it's one of those shows that I believe for me kind of got me back into horror. There was a there was a period of time there in the early 2000s where I was just I was fed up. You know, my my heroes were dead. Jason, Freddy, all of my old friends, they kind of they they got old and they weren't scary anymore. And the stuff that they were doing, the new stuff was just ah, it was just oh, found footage again, really? And Supernatural comes along and it's it's one of those shows where it's oh man, two two brothers hunting monsters. Well, and I'll tell you what, the other thing about that show that is so amazing to me, and and I say this to everybody because it's been on TV for so long, and so many people look at me and they're like, "You watch that CW show, Supernatural?" <laughs> you know, listen, when it started, it was anything but a normal CW show. Yeah, it was almost shot like it was an NBC show. It was written more intelligently than most CW shows. I remember when I started watching it, I just thought. Oh my God! This is this is actually scary. There are oh, yeah. for for television. There are network television. On top of it, there are actually moments of this that are so well directed that they're that they're a little scary. And season one, especially, especially yeah. season one. And as the show went went on over the course of the first five seasons, and we found out exactly how in depth it was the show and how how much detail was put into the story and the writer's room in this thing it really it really was something unlike we had ever seen on television i mean it was really kind of a brand new thing now it of course has since gotten away from that and has become basically just sam and dean killed this monster this week and now this season they're gonna go up against whatever the hell thing and they're gonna die again probably next week too because they keep dying i mean you know of course it it gets to that point but if you if you can't tell folks uh jason is a little jaded <laughs> uh, as am i uh, we both agree that the first five seasons it, it's a the first five seasons that is a solid five seasons it's and unlike it's hard anything, to say yeah it's hard to say that with any show that you have five solid seasons right but Supernatural, the first five seasons, a complete and total solid show. After that, it's uh, it's one of those things where, well, we just love the characters so much, you don't, you don't want to say goodbye to them, and you just kind of wish it would go back to the way that it yeah. used to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. <laughs> ah, comic books. I don't know if you know this, folks, but uh, Jason and I are uh, into comics. Uh, as a little bit i mean as as i said earlier in this episode uh, i met jason because he worked at a comic shop and i met him because i was there to buy comics so yeah we kind of like comic books and one of the great things about comic books is it's a great source for horror but again this is a crash course so we're going to take you on a very brief history of horror comic books and by doing that we're going to take you all the way back to the glorious 50s, to a little company called EC Comics. And EC Comics was responsible for the three big ones. The Haunt of Fear, the Vault of Horror, and the granddaddy, Tales from the Crypt. Yeah, really, I mean, you really, there's nowhere else to go. I mean, we, we could go back further and talk about 
we individual could. short stories that were in the back of maybe detective comics that maybe skewed right. a little to the supernatural and sure maybe that that could be the beginnings of it all and and yeah horror seeped into all forms of sequential storytelling prior to the 50s but really that's where it really starts yeah. ec comics man that's where it started but then sadly that's where it almost almost ended and if any of you are familiar in comic book history, most of you will probably know the, the, the book Seduction of the Innocents by Dr. Frederick Wortham, that bastard. Uh, this was the time of the, the, the Great Scare, the Red Menace, everybody's a communist, and everything that's, that, that's not regulated by the government and anything that might be questionable and you like it, oh, you're a communist. Sadly, comics were, uh, were were considered that, and there was a huge, huge decline in comic books afterwards because they of the creation of the comic book code. You couldn't do certain things. Horror comic books kind of went bye bye, just poof, gone. Yeah, well, doc, you know, uh, Dr. Frederick Wortham, who was really behind the whole push, you know, his big claim was that. Uh, Horror comics primarily were the cause of the decline in teenage behavior, you know, because at that time, you know, you got the greasers coming in, you got the beatniks coming in, teenagers were becoming a thing, you know, prior to that, it wasn't really an issue, you know, you you hit your teenage years and, and you went out and bought your own farm and got married and did your own thing, <laughs> or, you know, as you got further into the the early 1900s you know well you hit your teenage years you went off to to join the army or you went off to war or or whatever late 40s early 50s hits and now suddenly teenagers are a thing teenagers are doing you know the high school bop and you know you've got greasers and drag racing and all this stuff that's really kind of starting to take over hollywood is taking notice that they can start selling and marketing things to that particular age group yeah. so of course comic books they're going to they're going to look at that same that same thing but dr wortham's point of view was that this whole thing was the was the cause of of teenagers behaving the way they were and and it needed to be shut down and um I tell you, I think there's a great movie here. I've been working on oh, yes, <laughs> researching yes. this for yeah. years. I'd love to make a movie about about the seduction of the innocent. But um, yeah, and as a result, what came out of it was the Comics Code, which lasted all the way up until what ten years ago, maybe. maybe yeah, they, they finally got rid of the Comics Code not too long ago. But because of the Comics Code and the controversy, and we still have that controversy today. It, it seems like some group is always saying that violence on television, violence in movies, violence in video games, violence in music is causing violence with children. Sure, because it's always going to be easier to place the blame as opposed to looking in, inward and looking at yourself and finding out that maybe, you know, <laughs> maybe it has to do with the person or the upbringing or, you know, the, exactly. the surroundings. But again, it's always about passing the buck. If somebody's always going to want to blame somebody else. Luckily, though, in the really early 70s, the comic code kind of relaxed just a little bit, and we were able to get a, not a renaissance, but a resurgence in some of the horror comic books. Similar to uh, some of the earlier stuff, like uh, Tomb of Dracula from, mm -hmm. from Marvel. You'd get, uh, you'd had Dracula, I know that they created Blade, Morbius, the living vampire, you had Man Thing, Werewolf by Night, Werewolf by Living Night. Mummy, yeah, stuff like that. And again, horror related, but not really. Oh, blood and, and horror. 
No, but also, too, you know, you had the advent of underground publishing that was starting to come up at that time and that was starting to, to pick up steam. And so a lot of people that, you know, were trying to make these great sequential art stories but couldn't sell them to any of the big publishers because it didn't fit under the comics code they were publishing themselves and mm. that was starting a movement and i think that things like tomb of dracula and you know werewolf by night i think they were taking notice of a lot of that kind of stuff and they were starting to you know you had you had things like heavy metal magazine which, oh, yeah. which certainly dipped into that that horror aspect as well in that same that same period nowadays you've got specific books that are horror-based. You have franchises that are in an established universe that are specifically horror. John Constantine from from the Hellblazer comic books for DC and Vertigo. Sure, you got uh, Joe Hill's Lock and Key, mm. which, uh, you know, I, I read the first uh, few issues of that, and it's it's fantastic. Um, you know, that, that that was some really great stuff. You, you can't rule out Mike Mignola, the... <laughs> the creator of Hellboy. I mean, he's he also has created this whole giant universe of monsters and myth, and I've enjoyed the movies based off of his work. I've read only a fraction of, of his books, but everything that I've read from him is just, it's rich, it's entertaining, and sometimes downright creepy. Well, and his art will lend, lend to that as yes. well. His art is so, so stylistic. You know, then you've got things like Afterlife with Archie, which is my <laughs> personal favorite <laughs> book out there. Right I'm sorry, now. I'm sorry. What Afterlife with Archie? Afterlife with Archie. Yeah, it's uh, is this his retirement sounds... years or? <laughs> yeah, it's him sitting in a home with Jughead. You know, <laughs> feeding Jughead hamburgers through a straw. No, it's uh, it, it sounds like the most ridiculous thing in the world. And I I remember picking up the first issue out of curiosity i just yeah. thought there's there's no way this works archie meets zombies this is you know ridiculous archie and has met a lot of people over the years he's met the predator the predator he's met the punisher kiss kiss the teenage mutant ninja turtles and now we're going to meet zombies now we meet zombies yeah and i gotta tell you first off the art is not your typical archie art it is uh, very very stylistic mm. and uh, sets sets a really nice creepy tone with the use of a lot of shadows a okay. lot of black which is very different for an Archie book and it really just is the same characters I mean it really it has nothing to do with what you know of as Archie comics it's just here's a red-headed kid and his name is Archie and that's pretty much where the similarity stops here's a blonde and her name is Betty and that's about it and uh, you know by the end of the first issue Jughead has been turned into a zombie not and Jughead. Jughead, yep. Yeah, apparently Jughead's dog uh, gets, gets... Why not Reggie? <laughs> Reggie, I could see Reggie being a, a, a zombie, but Jughead... No, Jughead starts it, man. His dog gets gets hit by a car, and, and he goes to Sabrina, the teenage witch. Oh, God. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Sabrina, the teenage oh, yes. witch, is in this, Sabrina's too? Sabrina's in it, too, and she casts some spell that brings the dog back to life, but it's a zombie dog, and, and then the dog bites Jughead, and Jughead becomes a zombie, and then the plague spreads. As the series goes, <laughs> it it becomes a survivalist comic, and it just happens to have the Archie characters All right. from from issue to issue, and wow. it's and it's shockingly good. Every issue I read, I think this is the issue where it's gotta where it's gotta jump the shark, or it's gotta do something that that'll lose me. And and everyone is fantastic, and now it's done so well that Archie Comics has now put out. A new Sabrina comic book, really, which is done in the style of movies like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist 
or uh, you know you know uh, or the omen it's very very moody and very adult and not uh you know, I mean, she's still she's got the talking cat that she hangs out with, and she's still a witch, and she's still got the two ants. But there ain't nothing cute about this Sabrina book. All let right. me tell you. Well, you you've sold me. I, I have to I have to at least check out the first issue of Afterlife with Archie. <sighs> I'm going to go the complete opposite of the spectrum now, then, because we're we're talking about the Riverdale gang. Let's go across the pond, jolly old England. Let's talk about Alan Moore and talk about From Hell, mm. the quote-unquote origin and and mystery solved of the Jack the Ripper case. That's a hell of a graphic novel. The graphic novel, uh, I'm a fan of the movie simply because I like the actors in the film, but the movie strays away from the yes, source material in huge ways. My suggestion to anybody who's never read From Hell you definitely need to read it, but don't go into it thinking you're going to just see a comic book version of the movie. Because you're not, at all. Uh, well, very similar to anything Hollywood has done with Alan Moore's work, you're not going to get the Alan Moore punch from Hollywood. And then you've got, uh, you know, probably the marquee horror comic book out there right now, The Walking Dead. Robert Kirkman. He, that's that's the big heavy hitter. That's the big one. He's basically the Joss Whedon of the comic book world. That's the way I look at it. Robert Kirkman has done for horror comics what Joss Whedon has done for sci-fi, fantasy, television, and movies. And now he's doing it again with Outcast. You've got The Walking Dead, which is zombies, but now you've got you've got Outcast, which is basically The Exorcist. It's 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 yeah. demons. It's it's casting out the demons, and you, there's more than just one demon running around. And it oh, the, the book is great, and if the show can be a, a fraction as good as the book. We're I think we're in for a real treat. I agree. Listing other writers though who who have created multiple franchises in horror comic books. Uh one of my personal favorites who uh, ironically enough you you introduced me to this writer, yeah. Jason, yeah. Steve Niles. You know, you could almost even say that Steve Niles helped pave the way for Kirkman's success. If you not know, for Steve I, Niles there would be the the the, horror, the modern horror comic book would probably not be where it is right now, or at least it would be very different. And I and I I would still think that Kirkman would still have the success that he has, but I think it would have come about in a very different manner. I think Steve Niles' Thirty Days of Night really showed, hey, you can do horror comics today in a completely different way and really grip people. I mean, thirty that first thirty it's days, it's a brilliant is concept. Fantastic. I mean, it, it it boggles my mind that nobody had thought of that before. There's a location in the world where it's dark for 30 days. Of course vampires should show up there. And they're not sparkly vampires either. <laughs> These vampires want to rip your throat out and drain you of your blood. And then he and then he, you know, he has his stuff like the Criminal Macabre series, which, which is I know my, you're a big That's fan of. my personal fan. Out of everything Steve Niles has done, Criminal Macabre, Cal McDonald, this <laughs> this foul-mouthed, hard-drinking, pill-popping detective. He's he's so self-destructive because he sees the monsters. He knows they exist. And this knowledge has driven him to not only drink excessively, but abuse drugs at a dangerous rate. And yet he still gets the job done. He still saves the day. It's crime noir mixed with flat-out blood-curdling horror. 
And if anybody is a fan of either of those two, I would definitely suggest checking out anything criminal macabre related from Steve Niles. And that has all paved the way for the current crop of horror comics. And, you know, you've got things like Scott Snyder with American Vampire, which mm-hmm. is a fantastic series, and um, and and then his his more sci-fi monster series, The Wake. But more so than that, I think the guy that really is starting to, to take over the crown and, and take the position now is local boy, local St. Louis boy, Cullen Bunn. Oh, yes. With his work on things like Harrow County <sighs> and Blood Feud. And even even things that maybe are a little bit more fantasy driven, but certainly in the the horror angle, like Helheim. And um, he also and, did a uh, I want to say it was a limited series for IDW. Uh, he did a Godzilla book for a while too. Yep, yep. He did a Godzilla book, and and you know his um, his pseudo western steampunk horror series. Oh, which the six really, gun. Oh. Yeah, I, you know that guy, and it's and it's great to see a local boy. It is my mission. It is my mission to one day be able to get Cullen on the show, even if it's through the phone for five minutes, just to have him on the show for a few moments. That is my mission in life. Talking about missions in life, that's where I ask the audience. Hey, audience, out of all the comic book horror goodness we've talked about, what's your favorite? Or did we even list your favorite? I'm sure we probably did. Head on over to our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Fill out the web form on the right and let us know what comic book blood-curdling horror goodness that we talked about is your favorite. Or tell us that we're idiots and we left something really important out. All right, Jason. This is no surprise, but this episode's running extremely long. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's fun. It's fun to run extremely long when you're having an engaging conversation about things that go bump in the night. Well, and, you know, crash course, but it's still, it's, it's a lot to crash into this one. I mean, it's, it's very, very it's a much lot of so. info. Yes. So we're going to pause for the cause and we'll be right back. Don't miss the review of HBO's True Blood during the Fang Banger podcast from Two Guys Talking. Great entertainment with real bite. Check it all out at fangbangerpodcast.com. The Feedback Gauntlet. What podcast will offer you a hundred bucks cash to tell people what you think? There isn't another one out there. And it's time for you to tell us what you think right now. Check out twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet to jump into the Two Guys Talking feedback gauntlet. We're looking for feedback about any program we have on the Two Guys Talking podcast network. Follow the short instructions at twoguystalking.com forward slash gauntlet and you're entered instantly for a hundred bucks cash. What's this? Cash? For telling people what you think? Yes, cash. For telling people what you think. TwoGuysTalking.com forward slash gauntlet. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can. With perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, 
even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even if your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment, real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Blood, a dark passenger. The binding ties of clear plastic. They're not just hallmarks of the hit Showtime television program, Dexter. They're bullet points talked about each week on the Dexter podcast from Two Guys Talking. Don't miss out on killer dialogue that leaves you with a bloodlust for more. It's the Two Guys Talking Dexter podcast for Dexter fans. Find out more now at twoguystalking.com. That's the number two guystalking.com. Welcome back, everybody, to Two Guys Talking Horror. This episode, A Crash Course in Horror, Part 2. That's right, the sequel. Now, we've already gone through a lot of great television and comic books, but there's still more horror gems to uncover. Because horror is everywhere. It really is. (laughs) Video games. Now, I know as an adult, for the both of us, I'm going to speak for you. Yeah, go for it. (laughs) It wouldn't be the first time. (laughs) It wouldn't be the first time. It won't be the last either. Uh, (laughs) Uh, I know as adults, we don't spend a lot of time playing video games anymore, sadly. Life gets in the way. Yeah, and I and I, you know, I you know me, I I haven't played a video game regularly since Super Nintendo, so that you know tells you how far removed I am from the video game world. Right, extremely. That wasn't a dig at all, no. <laughs> but as a kid, video games were a, a part of everyday life for me. I don't know about you. I'm not going to speak for you now. <laughs> you were allowed to speak. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I played them. I never got into them as much. And I, I certainly dabbled with some horror video games. Again, you know, I, I played Atari, Nintendo, and Super Nintendo, and then I pretty much kind of stopped right. with the video games. So, yeah, it, it wasn't really ever, especially the horror video games, never really a big thing for me. I see. I, I did enjoy the early horror video games and and the modern. I mean, there, there's been a nice progression of horror. I remember the back in back in the golden days of uh, of, of console systems. Uh, we used to have games like Maniac Mansion and Splatterhouse, and then you'd also get these really crappy versions of. It was almost like they just slapped a horror movie's name on a game and kind of tricked you into thinking that you were going to play something. But uh, but again, you got to remember the '80s. The technology wasn't all that spectacular. You know, you'd have stuff like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre and Halloween. Uh, Nintendo had really bad games like Nightmare on Elm Street. And, Ooh, Freddy Krueger! What? This is nothing like a Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> this is a headache. This is that's what this is. You know, if it's popular, slap a name on it and and you make a game. Fine. But then you know things got a little bit more sophisticated. The people making these games actually started putting some thought. Hey. Uh, we could we could actually make more money if we make this a little bit more involved. 
And then you get really cool games like Castlevania. The Castlevania series, what's not to love? You've got, you're fighting Dracula. That's the whole point. You're, you have to stop Dracula from taking over the world. Oh, all right, sign me up. I want to stop Dracula. And on the way, you're going to fight Frankenstein's monster. You're going to fight a bunch of, of gill men, creatures from the Black Lagoon. You're going to fight some werewolves, some mummies, some zombies. Uh, it, it's a little bit of everything, especially if you grew up loving the old classic Universal horror movies. And then as time progressed, you started getting uh, the survival horror games like Resident Evil, Silent Hill. And again, you still would base your games off of popular movies. Nine times out of ten, those would fall short. Uh, I know Evil Dead had a series of games. Those were fun, simply because I love anything Bruce Campbell has anything to do with. It it goes on and on. And uh, again, I don't want to spend too much time talking about video games since you're oblivious to what I'm talking about. (laughs) But I do want to let everybody know that we are going to have an entire episode devoted to the evolution of horror video games. It's going to be me and my special host, Diesel Adams. Jason, you know Diesel. He's oh, he, yeah. He, uh, yet again, another brother from another mother. He's a fun guy. You're going you're gonna to love that, that episode. Yes, he's, he, he is my video game guru. He's played every single console. He's played every single game. He knows more about video games than anybody that I've run across in my travels in this world. Uh, I, I can definitely guarantee our audience is in for a treat, especially if they love video games. Broadway is dripping with blood, baby. Yes, I, I know you're kind of you're kind of taking it back. What 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 is he talking about? What uh, Broadway shows horror? What? But it's true. There are very popular Broadway and off Broadway shows completely devoted to the horror genre. Well, we're talking about telling a story here and really isn't that all horror is it's it's telling ghost stories or morality stories or monster stories or whatever in different formats and so of course you know the stage is going to take onto that onto that too even going back all the way <laughs> the turn of the century even i mean you know we were talking about dracula i believe in the previous episode on the crash course that the, the film Dracula with Bela Lugosi was based on a stage play. Right. So, you know, that Bela Lugosi himself starred in, and I, I can't remember if that was on Broadway or off Broadway, but... Yes. Um, it was on Broadway. I'm saying yes. Okay. It was. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so... And if I mean, I'm wrong, I dare you to prove me wrong. <laughs> so, yeah, so, I mean, you know, horror on stage goes back, you know, even to then, but in recent years, and by recent, I mean within my lifetime, so the last almost 40 years, you've seen a lot more of it on stage, both in straight plays and in musicals as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've got things like Little Shop of Horrors, which of oh. course goes into more of the campy end of horror, but it's still it's still a man-eating plant. Yeah, a musical on Broadway that then was transferred and, and, made, and made into, into a, a, a musical film. Stephen Sondheim's Sweeney Todd. Which uh, many argue is one of the greatest musicals of all time. You know, you're talking about <laughs> you're talking about a, a serial killer, mass murderer. You know, the demon barber of Fleet Street. They call him. I mean, the blood flows in that like you <laughs> wouldn't a, believe. That's a close shave. Yeah, yeah. 
you know, and then you've got your big ones like Phantom of the Opera, of course, right, and yeah. that's been done multiple times yeah. in multiple different versions. There's, you know, the Phantom and then there's the Phantom of the Opera, two completely different shows. Obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber is being the most popular. Hmm. But even today, you know, in the last 10 years, 10, 15 years, shows like our personal favorite, and I, I'm going to speak for you now <laughs> because I, I know well enough. I think I know, know where you're going this with is, this. This is one of your favorites, and it's certainly one of mine. Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And, yep. and I'm not talking about the Broadway version of Frank Wildhorn's Jekyll and Hyde. I'm talking about the touring workshop version of Frank Wildhorn's oh, Jekyll and Hyde. Oh, my God. Which is a completely different show from what, what actually ended up on Broadway. The, the workshop was... I, I was lucky enough to actually see it when it came through. And you're lucky there's not technology that would allow me to tap inside your brain yeah. and steal those memories. <laughs> it was it was quite quite an experience, and uh, and and just rich with this gothic sense of terror, and and it's being done live on stage. This this man is turning from a normal doctor to this sadistic killer, and. And he's doing it right in front of you without makeup, without CGI, without any other kind of effects. All they did is change the lighting, and the actor did it himself in front of you live. It was Ugh. amazing. You know, and this is – horror can be found anywhere. <laughs> Ironically, at the moment that we're we're doing this episode, I am actually doing a show here in St. Louis that is called The Weir. And it's an Irish play, mm -hmm. and it uh, – its whole focus is about these five people in an Irish pub telling ghost stories. It's not a musical. It's a straight play. And Connor McPherson, uh, the author of the piece, has written this, this basic uh, stage show about ghost stories. You see that all the time. There are so many out there. Shirley Jackson's The Lottery mm. uh, was yeah. turned into a, a stage play. Um, there was a show uh, that I did a, a number of years ago. It's actually a horror western about people stuck in It's a one act about uh, people stuck in a, oh gosh, if I can remember, I think it was like a shack or a, a farmhouse or something called The Outcasts of Poker Flat. Hmm. You know, which uh, certainly had its supernatural undertones to it. So it's not just we talk about comics and video games. Man, horror's everywhere. It's it's on stage, live in front of you, in person. It's actually kind of amazing how easily it can be transferred from one medium to another. There are there are a handful of films that have actually been turned into stage shows, either straight plays or musicals. Night of the Living Dead is a, a chilling stage play now, which has the, 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 based off of Romero's original Night of the Living Dead, it has the, the same feeling of isolation and closed-inness that the, that the film gives you. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, you also have stage shows like Evil Dead the Musical, which is a brilliant concept, and I, I kudos to the Canadians who came up with this, because it actually makes Sam Raimi's films make sense. They have taken the first two films, Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2, Dead by Dawn, squished them together to where they now make sense, where all the characters that were introduced in both films exist in the same linear storytelling, and very much like any movie that was turned into a musical, example, Mel Brooks's The Producers, you take dialogue from a movie and you turn it into a number for a show. 
and Evil Dead the Musical is is <laughs> has done has done that in spades. And to bring to bring all of this even full circle, before we were talking about the early days of television, and we were talking about the Adams Family, which is based on a series of of drawings and stories done in print form, turned into a TV series. Yeah. The TV series later on turned into a film. The film spun a remake television series, and now. The Adams Family has been brought to Broadway. It's a musical. It's a musical. So you know it it hits it hits everywhere. History has pretty much proven who wins the battle: the Munsters or the Adams Family. <laughs> Sadly, the Munsters went down in the second round. <laughs> Monstrous themes. No crash course in horror could be complete without talking about something very pivotal when it comes to horror in film, in television, in anywhere. Make it or break it, especially in film, movie scores. When I think of music in horror movies, there's one that pops in just, just right off the bat. Well, there's two, but the first one that always pops in is Mike Oldfield's uh, his, his beautiful score from The Exorcist. Yeah, it's really <sighs> kind of one of the best. I, I, I go back and forth. I think my second pick is probably the same as yours as well, but uh, I go back and forth between the two because that score for The Exorcist is chilling. <laughs> well, the, 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 I mean, the incorporation of tubular bells into the original piece, it's just kind of... Yeah. It, it, it's its gothic, yet makes you feel uncomfortable. But the brilliance of it is that it does it without having seen the movie. Oh, yeah. You know, I, I saw the movie for the first time, I think, when I was in high school. But I knew the music before mm. that. Oh, yeah, I knew the music. And the music was terrifying, even not knowing anything about the movie. The music itself evoked a sense of fear. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, and, and sense of fear? Sense of fear? Let, you you want to talk about music that invokes a sense of fear? Our second, I, I guess we're going to say this is our second, because I'm sure we're both on the same wavelength here. John Williams, all you need is two freaking notes, and I pee a little in my pants. Yeah. The theme to Jaws, you know, you know something bad's about to pop out of that water when you hear, da-da, da-da. Oh, oh, Jaws is coming. Brilliant in its simplicity. Just like the movie. Just like the movie itself, yeah. When you, when you think about it, just like the movie. But again... The, the thing that's so great about it is it's not just a score that accompanies the film. It's a piece of music that, when listened to on its own, evokes the same emotions that the movie evokes mm -hmm. in someone, whether you've seen the movie or not. Right. The music itself does it, which I think that, that in our eyes is why it, it is a horror piece of music as opposed to just a piece of music written for a horror film which right. you know there is a difference well it takes you on a journey yeah you listen to you it's listen to the piece and it takes you on this journey where first you're oh everything's fine what 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 is that oh, oh my god and you scream in terror and then it looks like oh things might be okay and then it's coming back again it, it takes you on a journey and if it takes you on a journey without saying a word it's all it's all music and it's it's brilliant with or without the film 
There are plenty of other themes out there, though, <laughs> that uh, come close to that. Very. I don't, I don't know that they quite reach the same level as um, as Williams. Well, I, who who comes even close to John Williams in general? I, but, I can't um, name anybody. You know, I don't think that these other pieces uh, come close to Williams or Oldfield's work. But uh, come on, John Carpenter. Just about anything that he's anything written, but, he's uh, done, really. I mean, it's and and there are a handful of things where you can kind of tell it's almost a little uh, throwback to something else he's already sure. done. But his earlier stuff, especially Halloween, Halloween. I if I hear that Halloween theme, I get I get nervous because Michael Myers is is the modern day boogeyman. No matter John Carpenter's Michael Myers is the modern-day boogeyman, no matter how you slice it. And the music associated with that ghostly, haunting shape, just, just it, it's the stuff of nightmares. It is the stuff of nightmares. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's one of the most brilliantly written themes ever. But then when you talk about nightmares, you can't rule out Charles Bernstein's score for A Nightmare on Elm Street. The good old-fashioned slasher films of our youth... Yeah, there's a number of those films that really have uh, amazing themes to them. Nightmare, of course, is one of them. Friday the 13th. Uh, Harry Man- Manfredini, yes. Manfredini. Um, even even into uh, the 90s, the you know Marco Beltrami's Scream theme. Yeah. Which is uh, really great. You know, I mean, those any of those slashers, they're great themes, and they certainly have a sense of horror to them. But I think most of them, it's because of their connection to the films. They certainly their music certainly enhances the movie. Mm, right. Again, it's hard to it's hard to compete with John Williams. <laughs> you know, it's hard very to compete hard to, with very with, hard uh, to compete you know, with, John with, with a piece like that that can be just taken out of context and still is scary. But let's not rule out television. Horror TV has had some some very catching and and gripping tones. Uh, the theme to the Twilight Zone is one that that do 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 do. You hear that? You know where you're going. You've just entered the Twilight Zone. Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, exactly. You know where you're going. You know who you're about to visit. But there are two. There are two shows that had just iconic scores written for them that even if you never watch the shows, you know, you you should know. In this day and age, you should know where those themes are from. And and we've talked about we've talked about this show earlier in the episode, Tales from the Crypt. Danny Elfman's Tales from the Crypt theme. <laughs> the music added to the visuals of the the opening for that show. You're hearing the music, and it's t- you are literally going on a, a journey because you're you're going through the graveyard up the up the ooh, up the path to the house. You go into the house. Now you're going through the house. Oh, now we're going down into the basement, and now oh, it's a freaking dungeon. What what is this? A catacomb? And oh my god, there's the crypt keeper. Yeah, I think Danny Elfman's stuff really uh, does a nice job of assisting the visuals for whatever it's being attached to and all of it not just not just his tv stuff like that i mean everything it's danny elf it's danny elfman i mean it, it has that kind of weird bizarre horror sound to it danny elfman that... and john williams are kind of like coke and pepsi yeah oh, uh, yeah yeah I get, they're yeah. very coke and pepsi you know some people like coke some people like pepsi and every now and then maybe you'll try both right right yeah but perhaps the best television horror theme i think Mark Snow nailed it when he created the theme for the X-Files. I, I, yep. That's Again, one of those very few pieces of music that when taken out of context and just listened to as a piece of music 
only mm-hmm. still evokes the feelings that you would get from from the medium that it's attached to. Yes. <laughs> Sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Horror and rock and roll, specifically heavy metal, have walked hand in hand for a very, very long time. And there are there there are actually a handful of musicians slash bands that their whole the their, their whole style is horror or horror esque. You've got groups like uh, the Misfits. You've got Iron Maiden, Slipknot, uh, Slipknot, War, Ugh, War, Kiss. Yeah, and I'm talking about classic Kiss before they took the makeup off. I mean, we're talking about a group of guys that dressed up in costumes and makeup. And it was this big production of a show. It was kind of a little sci-fi horror going on on stage with the music. And and that's continued. That's continued from the birth of heavy metal all the way up to modern times. I mean, and I'm I'm not saying that I am a fan of everybody that we're going to talk about. I'm not necessarily saying that they're good or that they're bad. But their music is out there. We've all we've all probably heard their music. Some of us are fans, some of us are not, but the one thing we can't deny is their connection to horror. So with that being said, Marilyn Manson. Uh the only reason why I know of Marilyn Manson is my sister. My sister is 5 years younger than I. There's a whole different generation gap there and she was listening to a bunch of stuff that I had no interest in. But I did find myself listening to some of Marilyn Manson and watching some of his music videos simply because of the aspect of horror. There were a handful of covers that Marilyn Manson did. One that comes to mind was his cover of the the song Sweet Dreams. Oh, sure, yeah. Featured in the House on Haunted Hill remake, which I'm a fan of. I'm a fan of that remake. The classic, you, you can't touch the classic. But for a modern modern-day remake, it was a fun flick. And that music enhanced that film. Uh, another cover that Marilyn Manson did was uh, uh, This is Halloween from A Nightmare, Before, Nightmare Before, Christmas. Before Christmas. You thought what Danny Elfman and Tim Burton had done in, in the film was creepy and kooky, but then to hear it come out of Marilyn Manson, the song actually takes a whole different uh, tone to it. And then you've got groups or individuals or or a little of both. Some of these people live their their lives this way, you know, horror and horror and metal all the time. Others, it's it's a job like anybody else. They put on their 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 work pants and their their guitar, and that's how they make a living. But you've got groups like White Zombie, who Rob Zombie then left and went on a solo career, but very heavily into the horror goth rockabilly type of a sound uh, i remember a living dead girl sure playing yeah. over and over every on the airwaves and anywhere you any dial you turned it to back in the day that song was playing black sabbath now black sabbath we're talking about the beginning in my mind the beginning black sabbath kind of started it the name of the group is black sabbath an old uh, Mario Bava, Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff film, yes. Horror Yes, film. exactly. And if we're talking about Black Sabbath, you got to talk about one person in particular, and that's Ozzy Osbourne, who also has gone on to live this 
horror rock lifestyle. Ozzy's lifestyle is what Ozzy's living. It's, it's bigger than, than anything. This is, this is a man who bit the head off of a bat on stage. That's pretty hardcore. And there's a lot of a lot of his music and associated music videos that are total horror themes. I mean, Bark at the Moon. Just to see Ozzy in the werewolf man makeup, it's really cool. I mean, e- even if you don't care for Ozzy's music, watch the music video. It's actually a it's, it's a pretty fun video to watch simply because of the makeup effects. But then you have some groups or individuals that don't necessarily live the horror lifestyle, but there's songs that they'll record that associate with horrific themes. Uh, the, the Talking Heads, one of my personal favorites, Psycho Killer. It's just got a fun, weird, quirky little beat to it. Then you've got heavy metal giants like Metallica, Enter Sandman. I, for the longest time, have actually wanted to do a fan film of taking all of the the, the greatest hits of Freddy Krueger and then mash that up with Enter Sandman. And I'm sure somebody out there has done it, but until you and I do it, Jason, with my creative genius and your editing wizardry, it's not going to be done right until we do it. You know, an interesting little thing about uh, Metallica <laughs> as, a, as a kind of a side story. When I was, uh, I was probably about 19, 18, 19, 20, something like that, my friends and I, we had, <laughs> we had a, quite a, a practice of playing on the Ouija board like, like any teenager would. Occasionally we would quote unquote talk to spirits and we didn't, you know, know what whether it was real or not and of course you know it's a freaking board game made by parker brothers whoever the hell makes it but (laughs) thanks a lot mattel right but i do remember that uh, we used to do it a lot in the basement of my friend brian's house in that room was also his bedroom so we would be hanging out in his bedroom we'd do it in there and i remember there was this one moment when uh his radio his his, uh, sound system just turned itself on by itself, we still have no idea how it happened. We weren't we weren't on the board or anything. We were just kind of hanging out, and it just turned itself on, and whatever disc was in there just started playing, and it just started skipping and playing the same part over and over again. Right. It was Metallica, and all it kept doing over and over again was the beast under your bed, the beast under your bed, the beast under your, that that one bit from the song over and over again, <laughs> and it's funny because later that night. Of course, we all got together, and we all teenage idiots. We jump on the Ouija board, and um, we're talking, quote unquote, talking to a spirit on there. And when we asked the spirit who it was, the spirit replied and spelled out the beast under your bed. I'm sure whoever was on the board was privy to the knowledge of the, Ah. you know, and was maybe pushing. But maybe they weren't. Who knows? But every time I think of Metallica in any kind of relation to horror, I always think of that night when that song came on and just played constantly. I'll never forget that. Metallica is forever etched in my brain with ghosts and Ouija boards. (laughs) <laughs> you're giving me that look like what the wow <laughs> you don't know actually actually and i know this is off topic but this is this is one of those great things that i never knew that i've never heard that story before i can tell by the look we've, on your face <laughs> we've known each other for a, a, a decade and a half almost and and i've never heard that story it just amazes me the cool little tidbits that you 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 don't realize are in the back of your head until a conversation like this comes up. It's it's the story aspect. That's a great freaking story. That would make a good short film right there, personally. 
a, a handful of stupid teenagers, and you know, we'd never get the rights for the was, snippet of that song because I was going to say, let's contact Metallica. Let's uh, see. Yeah, because they're they're, <laughs> because so, they're so user so deal yeah with. they're yeah. so user friendly. Now, unlike Metallica, there are some bands, uh, heavy metal bands, that'll actually do songs specifically for movies. They'll do a, a theme song, if if you will. One of the the all time iconic ones is Dream Warriors from Dokken. And, uh, of course, the, the reason why it's so iconic is because, in my opinion, and I think a lot of Nightmare on Elm Street fans will agree, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, The Dream Warriors, is the superior sequel to Wes Craven's original film. And they all kind of went downhill. Not saying that they were all bad. I'm just saying they started to decline in quality after Dream Warriors. And one of the great things about Dream Warriors was it had a rockin' soundtrack with an original song by Dokken. I'll share a story with you. Five years ago, my then-fiancé and I decided we were going to go see a concert. I had never been to an outdoor venue for a concert, and we went to... Forever, I will call it Riverport. I don't know what it's called now. It's, it's changed names. So it's many changed names so many yeah. different times. But the big outdoor venue here in St. Louis, uh, I consider it. It used to be called Riverport. Don't know what it's called anymore. Don't care. But we were going to go see Poison. My wife is a a big hair metal band fan, and I was like, oh, let's go see Poison. Yeah, sure. I love Poison. You love Poison. Let's go see Poison. So we we went to see Poison, but they had two opening acts, and they had. S. Bach, who I was like, who the hell is S. Bach? But you find out it's what Sebastian Bach is calling himself nowadays, or at least was calling himself at that point in time. So he's doing a lot of Skid Row songs. But then there was another opening act. There was a there was a second opening act, and it was Dokken. And for one reason or another, I was like, why does that sound familiar? And they come on, and then they they do a couple of songs. And I'm like, yeah, this is I'm I'm really enjoying myself. I, this is this is really great. Then the, the lead singer comes up and he's like, all right, now for our next song. Very popular. A lot of you. It's Freddy Krueger's favorite song, Dream Warrior. And I'm like, holy crap. That's why I know these guys. And they start singing Dream Warriors and I lose my mind. You have never seen a grown fat man jump up and down <laughs> and headbang like I did that day. So thank you, Dawkins. Thank you very much. And on the subject of bands doing music for a movie, you have one of the greatest bands of all time contributing to the entire soundtrack of one of the campiest cult movies of all time. Some of you horror aficionados out there already know what I'm about to talk about. For those of you that are a little clueless, ACDC, Stephen King, Maximum overdrive you know what's really funny about about that is um being the horror nut that i am and and being the big acdc fan that i am uh obviously i, I know that music i know the, the 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 soundtrack have yet to even see the movie have never actually really? seen maximum overdrive. you have never seen i i have never yeah just never gotten around wow to it. know all the music don't know the movie. That need that totally needs to change, man, because that's that's Emilio Estevez <laughs> at his best. That I mean, this is a this is a film that was written and directed by Stephen King, and he was able to get one of the greatest rock bands to do the whole soundtrack. So all through it, you got these giant trucks, you've got these these 
road construction vehicles, buses, tiny little compact cars. You've got all this stuff trying to kill people with a rocking ACDC soundtrack in the back. Yeah, I think, yeah, I'm going to definitely have to remedy that one. Yeah, I just never got around to seeing the movie. Okay, so we've talked about Campy. We've talked about Ouija boards. I want to talk about a man who lives his life rock and roll and horror. This is a man that I, there are multiple songs that are devoted to the horror genre. Uh, and then everything else he does has just this uh, uh, a hint of horror to it, no matter what he does. A great performer. A great man. I mean, if if you if you ever see any of his interviews, he's just he just sounds like a guy that you'd want to have a beer with. I'm talking about Alice Cooper. Alice Cooper has been making some great music now for the last forty plus years, and I have to admit, the first time I can actually say that I was introduced to Alice Cooper's music, it happened in 1986 with a little movie called Friday the 13th, oh. Part 6, Jason Lives. Oh, okay. Different. That is That was not my introduction. Uh, I know your introduction, and that was my second introduction. I, I probably did see it when I was a child, but I was too young to remember it. It wasn't until later on through syndication that I saw it. But we'll, we'll get to that. But I want to talk about this. Alice Cooper wrote specifically for the film, for the sixth Friday the 13th movie, a song called... He's back, the man behind the mask. And this song, it's the epitome of the slasher genre. Uh, it doesn't, you don't even really have to associate it with Jason Voorhees, but you can put it with any masked killer stalking its prey to a heavy metal soundtrack. And it's, it's, it's very enjoyable. It's fun. It's, it's tongue in cheek, just like 80s horror slasher movies are. Now, We'll bring up your first exposure to Alice Cooper, and I know I know exactly what it is. Looking at your face, it was when Alice Cooper was the special guest on The Muppet Show. Yeah, right. Yep. That's yep. that was it. That's that was, I really thought that's where you were going. Again, that. I probably did see that first, but I was probably so young I could I didn't remember it. Well, and that that figures that you would be the 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 little kid that's watching. Jason Voorhees and I'm the little kid watching the Muppets. You know, yeah, right? well, you know, different <laughs> different strokes for different folks. Yeah, no, that was the first time I was like, and I and I even remember thinking, what is who is this guy? What is this thing? What is this act that this guy is doing? And I just, you know, being hooked on the Muppets and just watching the Muppet Show all the time. Of course, I was glued because of that. But boy, when he came on, I I just thought this is this is unlike anything I have ever seen before in my at that time probably seven years of life yeah. uh, <laughs> and experience <laughs> but um yeah I just I just remember thinking that wow this this is something that we will probably never see again you know what uh, this is what uh, this is what I'll do because I know it exists out there I'm gonna do this will be a nice little treat for all of our fans I'm going to find a clip of Alice Cooper performing with the Muppet monsters on The Muppet Show. I will make sure that that clip is available for everybody to view over at the show notes for this episode, and you can check that out at twoguystalkinghorror.com. My gift to you. There's one last bit we haven't talked about, and we're, of course, saving the best for last, at least I think, uh, because this song 
this song, this video can be watched at any point in time. I, I could listen to this during Christmas. Uh, I, I'd listen to this for, for New Year's Eve. I listen to this during St. Patrick's Day. It doesn't matter what time of year it is. It's always a great time for Michael Jackson's Thriller. Amen. It's the epitome of the era. No, very his, much so. I mean, you know, whether you're a fan of Michael Jackson or not, whether you're a fan of the song or not, what that music video did and what that song did just in general at that time was unheard of. And I and I really do think that that is really kind of the the flag almost of of a certain era of pop culture and entertainment, not just horror. It happened to be horror, which is great that, that something from horror got to that kind of a status and that kind of level. Yeah. But um, it's probably the, the best music video, I think, in my opinion, I've ever seen. And, I, you know, there's a lot of great music videos out there. A lot there, of great music boy. videos. But not a lot of them have Michael Jackson performing, John Landis directing, and the brilliant makeup work of, of Rick Baker. I mean, ugh, it, it's a trifecta right there. I mean, the song is the song is great if you just listen to the song, but you get this whole movie-going experience when you watch the music video. And then the icing on the delicious zombie dancing cake, Vincent Price. Vincent Price's voiceover. I, honestly, for me, that's what I look forward to. When I hear Thriller is about to come on the, the, the radio, or if I play Thriller... I'm enjoying Thriller, but I'm it's it's the anticipation for Vincent Price's voiceover. And then I can't help but do my my own horrible Vincent Price impersonation and <laughs> and perform it along with the the song uh, an icon in the genre adding his voice to what is in my mind and I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels this way, one of the greatest collaborations ever conceived in any medium in any medium yes so i know we have covered a lot of ground here in this crash course of horror part two the sequel and i know i know we've probably forgotten something we're, we're only we're only human, right, Jason? Or or are we? Oh, we might be inhuman. <laughs> <laughs> what I'm trying to get at is let us know. Let us know if we forgot something. Let us know if there was something that we talked about and we didn't talk about it long enough. And you know what? This is how you let us know. Go to our Twitter presence, at 2GT Horror, and let us know. Did we gloss over one of your favorite rock bands? Did we not include one of your favorite horror comic books send us a tweet and let us know i can't believe it jason but uh we've come to the end of yet another exciting and and <laughs> in-depth episode of two guys talking horror yeah it uh, you know the time really does kind of fly <laughs> going over this <laughs> so until next time folks i'm nicholas j hearn your host and i'm jason contini your other host we'll see you next time Congratulations, you've survived this episode of Two Guys Talking Horror. We hope you were entertained and informed by our program. Take what you have learned and pass it on to your family and friends. It may just save their lives someday. Have questions? Comments? 
Suggestions for a future episode? Visit our website at twoguystalkinghorror.com. Click anywhere on the right-hand side and fill out our short web form. It's the easiest way to interact with the hosts. Beware of monsters, creatures, and all things that go bump in the night. And keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast. It's only a podcast. It's It's only a podcast.